You guys want to pray with me? God, even right now, we're not just interested in hearing another teaching or a sermon. We want to engage with the living word of God by your spirit. We pray right now for an awareness of your presence. That we'd be able to just turn off all the other signals and distractions and thought patterns and whatever it is and just dial into the glory of your presence even right now. Would you touch my ordinary words? I am just an ordinary man, but fill me with your power in your life, God. Fill me with your boldness, your fire. Fill me with the love, the the intoxicating love of Jesus in this moment. And God, let your word change lives. Let your word transform our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like the Lord's just already moving in, in different waves this morning, and I just feel really sensitive to what he's doing. And um, I just want to extend that to you guys, that sometimes the glory of the Lord comes in billowing waves. And just, just as I'm teaching and, and preaching, would you just take a moment when you start to feel those waves and just, just honor his presence right where you're at? Would you just do that with me? And I just, I just feel like there's a corporate invitation um, to pray for his presence to come in greater measures. I just, I just was hearing the, the song, Let It Rain, in, in worship. And the rain of God, his very presence falling on his people. Isn't that what we're after? Maybe, maybe we can even just sing that together for a moment, huh? Let it rain, let it rain, open the floodgates of heaven, and let it rain, let it rain. you know that you were born for the impossible? You were born to have an appetite, a hunger, a, a ferocious appetite for the impossible. 
It's in your DNA as a child of God. He has designed you to hunger for more, to not stay complacent, to not stay in a place of compromise, to not stay in a status of lukewarm. We are called to be those. The Lord spoke to me recently, and Father God, how many of you know that he can be cheesy? (laughs) He can be cheesy, and he's like, you know, LA isn't just Los Angeles. He's like, it's a love army. And he's like, I'm raising up a love army in this land. And I feel like some of you, I needed to hear this. Some of you need to know that though Los Angeles can feel like a hard place sometimes, it can feel dirty, it can feel like a first and third world nation all at the same time. Facts, you heard it. But the Lord was speaking to me and he's like, Tommy, don't you want to give your all for me on this earth? Life is but a vapor. You get to spend all of eternity with me in heaven. You are in this city because you have purpose, vision, and mission. This is not a time where you retreat just to have a comfortable life. There is a glory in the uncomfortable. There is a glory when we give our yes, feeling the stretching, feeling the pulling, feeling the uncomfortable because in the uncomfortable is where change and transformation actually occurs. It is time to be in a season of embracing uncomfortable. We are those who are called to take risks and to step out in faith. We are called to be the face and the holy body of the living God to a world that doesn't know his face and doesn't know his body. They don't know. Maybe they've heard about who Jesus is. They've heard about these Christians and these hypocrites and fill in the blank. But we are here in Los Angeles to bring a redeemed and restored face of Jesus to the world around us. We're not meant to look like the rest of the world. We're not meant to look like those around us. We are called a peculiar people. Apparently, I don't say that word much. Tongue twister. All right, we got that. I was going to say it again. I'm going to stumble over peculiar people. I was on a roll. Let's go. All right. We are called aliens in this land. We are citizens of heaven. Citizens of another land. Citizens of another kingdom. And what I want to preach on today is becoming a dwelling place for God. How many of you know that Jesus didn't just come to die to get you to heaven? He came to get heaven inside of you and to see it flow through you. So many of us wake up in the morning and I know so many individuals in my life that are riddled with all kinds of anxiety and stress and concern and they're consumed by their problems, they're weighed weighed down by their relationships. And I believe that the reason that we are so shackled to these things and these fears and these anxieties is because we didn't actually wake up in the morning for me. I didn't wake up in the morning for me and how I could get my problems fixed and how I could be fulfilled and how these relationships around me could make me feel better, and how I could have a better day. I woke up in the morning, and this is a shift for all of us. I want to wake up in the morning and give glory to God. 
and say, God, this, is, this life is for you. Do you know how much freedom there is in laying down your life and your rights for the all-consuming fire who is Jesus? It's called an antinomy. It doesn't quite even make sense. It's almost a paradox. But when we, when we give up our lives, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. And when you are slaves to righteousness, then you are truly free. You are truly free. And so God's doing something in our hearts. He's awakening something. And I believe that this is a key in this hour to know that we are a dwelling place for God. We aren't just waiting for the sweet by and by, but we are those who are consumed with a holy fire, knowing that he has made us a resting place. He has made us a home. He has made us his temple. He has created within us the holy of holies. Don't you expect something to change when you have the holy of holies living inside of you? I had a dream several years ago that, that really changed my perspective on these things. In this dream, if you're familiar with the old tabernacle of Moses, there was the ceremonial um, cleansings that had to take place, and then the priests could go into the holy place, but the high priest could only enter into the holy of holies one time, of, one time a year. And the holiness of God that dwelt in that place could not mingle with any kind of sin. And if, if the high priest had any kind of sin in his life, there was the potential for him to drop dead in the Holy of Holies. And so they would attach to his ankle bells and a rope just in case he dropped dead. If those bells stopped jangling, something's the matter. They'd have to pull him out by his ankles. That's the holiness of God. And how many of you know that Jesus made a way to enter into the holy place and the holy of holies? And not only that, he made your heart his home. But in this dream, I was in the holy place and my back was to the wall of the holy of holies. And the, the thunderous, intimidating roaring power of God was vibrating the, the walls violently. And I could see flames of fire licking through the curtain. I was terrified in the dream of the holiness of God. There's that awe and wonder that took place. And in walks Aaron, high priest Aaron. He walks in and he looks at me so casually and just says, well, are you going to go in? And that was the end of the dream. The Lord has made a way for us to enter in to the Holy of Holies. Yes, there is an awe. There is a reverence. Yes, there is that quaking within us that falls to our faces. I am unworthy. But he looks at you in the eyes and says, I have made you worthy by my son. Enter in. Enter in. And some of you, even today, don't even realize that as a believer, you are in the Holy of Holies, but you've somehow Velcroed yourself into a corner. You can't even look, but he calls you worthy. He calls you holy. And he says, come near, come near to the throne of grace. There's that holy invitation paid for by the Lamb of God. 
And when we're looking sometimes at the book of Acts and we're looking sometimes at the the saints throughout history and we're looking sometimes at the anointed man of God or woman of God that's seen God move miraculously and with power, I have to tell you today that that is not just for the book of Acts. That is not just for the years of history where we see God move unusually. That is not just for the man or woman on stage bringing a moment of God's power and grace into a situation. The Lord has called each and every one of you to be a world changer in your own way, to be one that connects with the boldness and faith and power of the Holy Spirit that is alive within you, a holy furnace. And some of you have grown cold and the coals of your heart are growing a little dim. But I believe this message today is to blow upon the coals of your heart and to stir up a fresh faith and fire within your hearts and a fresh faith and fire within this house because this is called to be a house of glory. This is called to be a house of radical sons and daughters who are without compromise, who are without a place of being a lukewarm believer, but are are called to link arms together to be that love army, awake, alive, alert, to be those with your lamps lit, ready for the king of glory to come in. And so this is the message today, becoming a dwelling place for God, a dwelling place for God. There is a revolution happening in the church right now. No longer is the church just a social club or a place of religious motion. We are again becoming a true dwelling place for God to move, a house of prayer and a house of power. The cry of the 1990s outpouring in Toronto They gathered together, saw God move in miraculous ways. They saw the outpouring of God's love as a father breaking in on his kids in in ways that they had never experienced before. And as grateful as they were to see God move, the cry at that hour was, more God, more God, consume us more. Because there's a holy desperation and hunger within his kids to see, I'm not going to settle I want all of you. I want the fullness. I don't, want, I, just, I don't want to stay comfortable. I want to see more of you, God, operating in my life with your power. We need to see more salvations. Why stop at a billion soul harvest? There's eight billion out there. More, lo- more, Lord. Stir it up in our hearts to be those who want to be those casting out the nets to see. Come in. Come in. See just how good God is. Come in, see his true love and freedom that can be accessible to you. It's the cry of more within the hearts of God's kids. The hunger, desperation of God's people continues. We don't want to settle for less. We've tasted and we've seen God's goodness. We have seen his hand and we know that there is more. And because of this heart cry and posture of hunger and humility, we are seeing God's will be done on this earth as it is in heaven in greater and greater measures. So let's now look at an examination of the house of God found in the book of Genesis. Would you flip with me to Genesis chapter 28? Scripture talks a lot about being God's dwelling place or God's house, but what does that actually mean? And if we understand what it means to us as individuals to be God's dwelling place, as well as collectively to be God's dwelling place, it changes every part of your life. From the renewal of our minds to the outworking of your particular area of ministry. 
It changes how we pray with power. It changes the way that you battle difficulty. So let's look for a moment at the study of the house of God in scripture. Often when you are studying a particular theme, you go back to what is called the law of first mention, meaning the very first place that it's mentioned in scripture, you look at that place and you study it. It's, it's the incredible intentionality of the Lord to place that in scripture to highlight this is where a particular theme is birthed. And so the house of God was first mentioned here in Genesis 28. Let's turn there together if you haven't already. And let's read. This is a little context. Um, Jacob, who is probably one of the, the better known figures in the book of Genesis, is a descendant of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. So there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and his brother Esau were at odds with one another. If you can remember that um, Jacob, in a sense, stole the blessing of his twin brother. And so there's a, a schism there that takes place, and Jacob's a little bit out on the run here. And so in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now, sounds like a nice comfy pillow, but <laughs> just imagine with me, probably had a nice, a nice relaxing slope to it. Verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Verse 16, if you drop down. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, the fear of the Lord, afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. So there's a few key things I want us to note from this passage right away. How many of you know that Jesus can be found on every page of scripture? And Jesus can be revealed right here in Genesis 28. Yes. First thing I want us to be, um, to be honing in on here is, number one, are we aware of his presence? This tells us it's entirely possible that the presence of God is moving in a particular way or a particular location, but you can be completely unaware of it until you have a revelation. And in this case, Jacob had a revelation of God's presence through a dream. How many times are we in a church service where one person is having a divine encounter with God, meeting with him face to face, and the person next to them is completely checked out, thinking about maybe Taylor Swift is at the Chiefs game today. What am I gonna be having for lunch? But the person right next to them is having this divine encounter with the presence of God. We can see it time and time again in church services, can't we? It's because there's, there's an awareness to his presence that we get to participate with. There can be um, um, an individual that is completely oblivious. And in a sense, Jacob was oblivious to the presence of God until the revelation came. 
So number one, there's an awareness. Number two, the house of God operated under an open heaven. A second feature we see in this passage is that the house of God operated under an open heaven. Now, what is an open heaven? It is where the demonic realm and any spiritual mixture is dispelled. And there is a pure and powerful flow and clarity of heaven's impact touching earth at that moment in time. We can see the demonstration of an open heaven by the Lord revealing it in Jacob's dream. How did he reveal the open heaven in his dream? He shows this spiritual metaphor of angels ascending and descending on a ladder. Now, in Hebrew context, it may or may not have been a literal ladder as we think about. It could have been more like a ziggurat-style staircase. But either way, it is a bridge from heaven to earth, and there is angelic activity. Now, the angels descending to earth, they are angels on assignment to carry out the will of God. And those who are ascending to heaven have finished a task and are returning to heaven to hear their next assignment. This is a picture for us of an open heaven. And when Jacob came out of his dream, he proclaimed, this place is none other than the house of God. What did he mean by this? There was no structure of a house. In fact, we know he's just resting his little head on a rock. There's no, there's no structure around him. There is no tabernacle of Moses, tabernacle of David. There's no temple of Solomon. There's just a rock in the midst of God's presence. And he calls it a house of God. This is none other than the house of God. And then he says, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, what's a gate? A gate is a natural place of transition and access. A gate takes you from one reality to another. You can walk through a gate into the domain of someone's household. It could be a legal property line, but you enter through a gate into a new realm, a new authority, a new access point. For example, I'm sure many of you love the Chronicles of Narnia. And sweet little Lucy and Edmund go through a threshold into a new realm. It is a gate into a new realm. The first revelation of the house of God in scripture is important for us to remember because it will help us define everything that we are. Number one, it's a place where there is an open heaven. Number two, God speaks through that open heaven. Number three, angels come and go. There is angelic activity through it. And a gate is the access point between two worlds, between two realms, the realm of heaven and the natural realm, the realm of heaven and the hearts of men and women. Now I want us to flip and fast forward to the book of John because we see the mystery of this picture, this image, this metaphor, if you will, this dream of an open heaven that's taking place and the gate of heaven. Now, throughout Hebrew literature, they probably would have had questions of what this completely meant. But in the life of Jesus, we see the fulfillment. John 10, 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out 
and find pasture. Not only that, he's calling himself the good shepherd. Jesus himself is the gate. He is the way to eternal life with the eternal one. He is the open heaven. He is the one that brings the kingdom realm into this realm. He is the only access point of salvation, and he makes that very clear. He is the way to experience the kingdom realm and open heavens. A few chapters back, let's continue to see the unveiling, the fulfillment of this unusual Old Testament metaphor. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, another name for Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, God incarnate. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now it says that he made his dwelling among us. Dwelling here in, in the text means to tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Jesus, the Son of God, coming in the flesh, tabernacling among us. He was the house of God made flesh, the very place where God's presence dwelt. Jesus coming to earth is the initial fulfillment of this word from Genesis 28. The house of God isn't just a place or a building. It is a person, and his name is Jesus. Let's keep reading in John 1. We see further revelation explained by Jesus when he's talking to one of his disciples named Nathaniel who's also called Bartholomew. And in John 1, verse 49, Nathanael, having a conversation with Jesus, says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He's having a revelation of who the Messiah is. Verse 50, Jesus said, You believe because I told you. I saw you under the fig tree. Now, earlier, Jesus had had a prophetic vision, a word of knowledge that Nathanael was under this fig tree. And, and it was true, and it had, it had really gripped Nathaniel's heart. And Jesus said, you will see greater things than that. He had already started to see a, a miracle of Jesus, and he said, you will see greater things than that. Verse 51, then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open. Sound familiar? You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the fulfillment of this metaphor of an open heaven, of a connection between heaven touching earth and the greater move of heaven operating into this realm. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Will we see the victorious pull of the King of glory entering in? Now I want us to enter into a a gospel story that I believe um, has a lot of parallels to what we're talking about. Jesus here in Matthew 16, if you want to flip there. Matthew 16. Jesus is traveling with his, his disciples, his followers. And let's read this together. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say... You're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others still Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They were actually talking about who the son of man is. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? 
And Simon Peter, who's always a great spokesperson for the crew, he likes to be quick on it. He answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So what's going on here? Here, Peter's acting as this kind of spokesperson for all the other followers with him, boldly calling out the lordship of who Jesus is, saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus confirms that the Lord himself, the work of the spirit in the heart of the father has revealed this to Peter, that it is true. Now, verse 18 is hotly debated because we get to this portion of scripture and says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the Catholics took this to mean Peter is the first pope. He's the rock on which the church will be built. He's the pope. And, and there's a lot of theological discussion of what this means. Peter's name actually means stone or rock. Simon meant reed. Peter means stone or rock. I believe it's a prophetic declaration of Jesus with a name change. It says, you were once a reed tossed in the wind, but I'm calling you prophetically a rock. Could it also mean that Christ is the cornerstone? He is the rock upon which he builds his church. Regardless of the immediate interpretation, there is one of two places in the Gospels where the church is mentioned. Only two places where it mentions church. And Jesus is calling out, calling out God's people as those who will be the ones that build up and are powered and strengthened. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overcome the church, meaning that death will not overcome God's people. Nothing that hell is trying to do will overcome the work of my people. Now, what is significant about the location of Caesarea Philippi? Caesarea Philippi is about 45 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, northern Israel. And for years, there would be, uh, it was a hotbed of all kinds of occultic worship. First, they would worship Baal for years and years. And then they would, um, they would worship a god Pan in Greek mythology. And then when Rome came into it, to influence, they would worship the Caesar. And so there was all this kind of worship taking place. But at this particular area in Caesarea Philippi, there is an enormous rock with, with a, an opening that they would call the gates of hell. And what they would do in occultic practices would take babies and throw them into this pit. They would perform sexual acts in front of this thing. It was literally like hell on earth in this location. They would worship these goat gods. It, it would go on and on. And this is where Jesus is like, hey, disciples, we're going to go for a little field trip. Caesarea Philippi. Let's go for a cute little field trip up north. And they got to this place where there's all this kind of godless worship taking place, where the gates of hell 
are seeing all kinds of darkness on display. And Jesus is pointing to this and says it could be government, Caesar. It could be any kind of false religion. Whatever the enemy is trying to to kill, steal, rob, and destroy, whatever hell you're experiencing, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And then he tells them, and I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Because what we see in the authority of Jesus when he decided to ascend to heaven was to say that I'm going to give you a helper. Don't be sad that I'm going away. This is actually better because the Holy Spirit is going to come and he is going to empower you and embolden you and move through you with wind and fire and power. And so Jesus ascended to heaven and he sat down on the right hand of God. And the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, where the church was birthed. And the power of God came with, with a thunderous, mighty roar, a wind that rushed through and flames of, of fire rested upon his people. And the whole world started changing. The movement of the Holy Spirit illuminating hearts to see truth starting to see Jesus as the Messiah and starting to see through our own ministry, the works of darkness start to crumble under the authority of the name of Jesus. Nothing hell is trying to do will overcome the work of my people. I've been saying this all year long. It seems to be a theme that we are called to be a people on the offense, not on the defense. Whatever darkness, whatever principality, whatever scheme the enemy is trying to throw at us, it will not prevail against us. The kingdom of God is an ever-advancing and winning kingdom. And Jesus promises in the end that no gates of hell will stand. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you know what kind of powerful prayer of authority that the Lord just gave you? It was central to Jesus's ministry and it's central to ours today. What does it mean? It means that what we see, what we see in the heavenlies, what we find in scripture, what we hear from the Father through relationship, what we hear in our hearts leaping, that this is the will and heartbeat of heaven, we get to arise and bring the authority of God into situations where there is darkness and decay and destruction and bring the light of Jesus into those moments, binding the works of darkness and loosing the will of heaven. In a church that I was attending several years ago, there was a woman that came forward on the prayer line and the doctors had confirmed that the baby in her womb had died. There, there was um, confirmation at the doctor. And she came forward more, more than anything just for some comfort. But the woman on the prayer line, rather than agreeing in a moment with the reality and the natural and the wisdom of man, looked towards heaven knowing that Jesus paid for an open heaven, knowing that she is a walking encounter with the goodness of God, and said, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to downplay your emotions here, but I believe that your baby is alive. And she started praying resurrection power and life into the womb, not agreeing with with what had been written in doctor's reports, but ascended 
to what the will and heart of heaven was in a moment and started declaring it, binding any work of darkness, binding any kind of death and loosing resurrection power in that moment. That woman went back to her doctor and that baby lived and was born. The doctors were absolutely dumbfounded, dumbfounded because they were like, this is impossible. And how many of us know that nothing is impossible with God? Nothing's impossible with God. And he wants to stir up this kind of faith within our lives again today. This is not just for the early church. This is not just for nations that haven't had the written word of God yet. How many of us know that the kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk, but of power? And I believe the Lord is stirring something up in our body that each and every one of you in these nice little Ikea chairs are sitting there feeling a fresh fire of the Lord that you were born for the impossible. That through your hands, death has to flee. Through your, through your ministry, demons have to flee. This is not a time to cower and say, well, I've only been a believer for a few weeks. It don't matter. You have the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit. Could it be that as believers, the only closed heaven that we're encountering is just between our ears? Because our agreement and our beliefs has shut the heavens. Could it be that by the power of the word of God, that we actually see and believe what we read in scripture, that that's for us today too. That is for us today too. And we start to yield ourselves to the truth rather than our own experience. And I believe the Lord is actually bringing an uptick in our risk-taking. I felt it myself, some conviction. I felt it myself, some conviction that to step out, to take risks, to align to what heaven is saying and doing. Going about my day, not just moving from meeting to meeting, not just being busy, not, not just going to the next thing. Oh, I'm going to be 10 minutes late if I talk to this person. What if we actually started looking like Jesus? What if we actually looked someone in the eye and embodied love? What if the pressure's actually off because you're just bringing a love encounter to someone? And it's not about even the result, but it's about Jesus himself being embodied in that moment. He can do the heavy lifting. You're not doing it in your own strength anyway. What would that look like? to be carriers of the presence of God, to be those that host him well, walk with him aware that the dove is with us, and just listening to the, to the simple nudgings of the Lord. When he says, go right, go right. He says, go a little further left, go left. It's, the, it's that sensitivity to the presence of God that I want to foster in the house today. The fulfillment of the house of God and the gate of heaven is seen here in John 1, being revealed in Jesus, yet it was not the final fulfillment. We see the impact of God's presence poured out through the ministry of Jesus, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit moving in him and through him, seeing all kinds of works of heaven. But then we see that it moves to us. It moves to the saints. It moves to God's people. Those that he says, now you be my body. 
Now you be my body on planet earth. John 14, 16 to 17, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it, it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 is all about how we are God's temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of God dwells in us, with us. Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 20. 22 says that Jesus is the cornerstone and we are being built together as a dwelling by his spirit. First Peter 2, we are called living stones being built as a spiritual house. The key here is that those who have been redeemed, the church, are now the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God here on earth. Jacob's dream wasn't just about a physical location. It was about God's own people, every born-again follower of Jesus, and it is the, at the heart of our identity and purpose. Being the house of God, a temple of the Holy Spirit, is at the heart of everything we are called to do and to be. You are called to be a house of his glory where angels ascend and descend on mission, living under an open heaven of God's glory touching earth. Our assignment is to be those who host him well, to stay aware and connected to his lead, his voice, abiding with him with rich relationship, staying pure in our character and affections towards him and towards others. So I wanna end with this. What does it mean for us then? What does it mean for us? It means that no power of darkness can stay in the way of the open heaven paid for by Calvary. Nothing can stop our fellowship with God. We live under an open heaven. We might be walking around in disbelief, shutting the, the heavens between our own ears, but you have to know that you are walking under an open heaven. Someone repeat in the room that I am naturally supernatural. I am naturally supernatural. Say it again. I am naturally supernatural. When I meet someone on the street or out at a restaurant, I get to engage with God's love and awareness that he's with me. And heaven is going to bring what is needed at that moment. And, and the Lord is bringing about a, a recognition of fresh authority in our hearts. That no matter if you just received Jesus or you've walked with him for 40 years, being a house of God means the authority that Jesus has, he has given to you. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He has entitled and empowered you to be his house. You can be a believer in the darkest places and cities on earth, and you still have an open heaven over your life. Nothing can stop the movement of heaven through your life. In fact, sometimes the darkest places is where the light shines the brightest. It's when we become too impressed with the work of the enemy that we begin to shut the heavens with our own agreement and our belief system. Sadly, so many of us haven't been living in such a way that we demonstrate being a house of God. We have settled for a powerless, lacking spiritual walk. Sometimes we're more satisfied with good theology rather than pausing with someone on the streets and looking them in the eye. To be one that is ex experiencing a naturally supernatural life, we have to set our hearts on being the house of his glory, a house flooded with him wherever we go. But when you're born again, you have lost your right to say, I'm only human. 
You have lost your right to say, I'm only human. So many of, so many of us say stuck, we stay stuck in sin habits because we believe that we're only human. We stay stuck in powerlessness. Powerless. We are powerless because we say we are only human. But I have to tell you that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead chose to dwell within you. If you are born again, you are a brand new creature. You are a partaker of his divine nature. You are filled with the life and substance of God himself. And you are equipped by the Holy Spirit with everything needed for life and godliness. You are not only human. You are so much more. Paul even corrects and rebukes the church for believing as such in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, we demolish arguments with every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Do you sense the authority that you have as a believer? You can take every thought captive and make it surrender in obedience to Christ. Because it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. We empower the enemy when we agree with man-centered philosophies and natural wisdom alone without the wisdom of God. Wisdom of man is good. Your tire pressure is getting low. Fill her up. Natural wisdom. You don't need a word from the Lord for that. But when we are facing different situations, connect to the wisdom of God. What does he say about it? Are we giving man-made philosophies and ideas and what is wisdom from man and trumping it above the, the word of God? That's the place where we empower a disempowered enemy. When you follow the thinking and patterns of this world, you open the gate for the enemy's influence to kill, steal, and destroy. If you are one of those individuals that, that think about your life and are consumed with your problems, and you're consumed about whether you're having a good day or a bad day, and you're consumed about maybe if these things just started getting in order, maybe if I get a better job, maybe if this relationship improves, maybe if my funds change. Did you know that through, through that belief system that your problems are, are running your life rather than God running your life, you are actually giving the enemy a gate and an access point to do it again, to give you another problem. Oh, great, this took him out. Let me give you another problem because I'm gonna disempower this believer to stay shackled with their own ups and downs and emotions and stay self-consumed and self-obsessed rather than one who has given it all to God and stays in surrender and stays in a place malleable before the Lord and wakes up in the morning and says, this life is not my own God. What do you have for me today? This is not about my own fulfillment. This is not about the affirmation of those around me. This is not about what I can accomplish and do. This is about you and you alone. And that's where true freedom and liberty comes. When you can lay all of that down and live in that surrender and know it's all for his glory. And so that thing that's happening before you, that gig, that account, that relationship, it's so open-handed because you're like, this is for the Lord and I'm living good. I'm living, I'm living in character before him. 
And so you don't have to fear and stay anxious and crippled with the thing in front of you. Your job situation might not change, but the Lord is your God. And he, he gives you a clear demonstration of, Tommy, you're in this job today. I've got for you some surprises. And I've got some surprises for those you work with. And you get to serve your boss in this season and you get to demonstrate the heart of Jesus for this individual, and you're stuck in traffic for 45 minutes twice a day, but listen, I'm gonna meet you in traffic for 45 minutes twice a day. And all of a sudden, this life, we lay down our rights and say, this life is not my own, this is for Jesus. And his life breath comes, and the demonstration of his kingdom comes. And all of a sudden, the one who is love you start to embody. And all of a sudden, you're not so busy about rushing around and going to the next thing and making sure you're at the next mingle hour because you might not get a job if you don't go there and what ba 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 You know what I mean? So stuck in your own doing, trapped in the world system, and you actually just get to live as one that's surrendered and free. And when God gives you an instruction, you obey. And when he says, stay home and rest and be with me, stay home, rest and be with him. It's all about the aligning back to the first love of Jesus. It's all about that surrender. It's all about coming back and laying down all of the things that we have made it and just saying, oh my gosh, how have I partnered with these things? How have I become riddled with this emotion? But he said, it's okay, son. Just come on back. Come on back. I got you. Take that backpack off right at the foot of the cross. Take it off. I got you. Let me hold you. He's so good, guys. He's so good. And what an honor it is to be a carrier of the presence of God. What an honor. What an honor to carry the living water of Jesus to a thirsty land. I think I just want to end there today. Can we actually just respond through singing? I, I feel like it's, it's part of that surrender that we can just give back to him. And some of you even right now can just be laying down those burdens. It might be repentance for some of you. It might just be a choice to be like, man, I have shut the heavens from my thoughts my thought life. I've, I've put theology above just embodying love to my neighbor. I've put, abo- I've put being right above the beauty of the mystery of just knowing the love of God. So maybe we can sing this together. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to
sing that again. Yeah. I blessing today, God. By your Holy Spirit, I can sense the, the sensitivity that's coming into hearts where there's been a stone-like movement in some, that there's a softening, that there's a shedding of layers, and there's just a willingness like, God, where have I been? I, I just want you, God. I just want to return. I just want to return to that sweet place, the place of your goodness and faithfulness. I'm sorry for the ways that I've parted with anything else. And I just come home and I come to a place of your peace and your rest and your joy and your favor and the light of your face shining upon me. In Jesus' name, amen.